Hey there, Alyssa here. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to take a second to thank you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, it would mean so much to us if you could share with a friend or stop by Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Now on to the main event. You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. For me, it's hard to imagine a time in which politics were considered solely a man's domain. Since the day I turned 18, I've had the right to mark my choice and slap an I voted sticker on my shirt, which I've done with pride. But that hasn't been true for all American women across time. Exactly 100 years ago today, the 19th Amendment was ratified, officially giving women the right to vote. But that victory was hard fought, and it didn't extend the same right equally to all women. Our history books give us a glimpse into those fraught times, but author and historian Susan Schulten is here to uncover some of the realities of the anniversary we celebrate today. You've called the road to women's suffrage a crooked path. What do you mean by that? And can you give us a brief map of what that path has looked like? Absolutely. I used that phrase, the crooked path to the 19th Amendment, very intentionally. Um, I intended to indicate that there's nothing simple or straightforward about the history of women's suffrage. It is not a steady march toward victory. And instead, it's much more interesting and complicated. It's a road that sometimes moves in one direction, sometimes another, sometimes making gains, other times incurring losses, different appeals, different regions. Uh, I think sometimes we look at the past and we wanna see a clear arc Uh, one that leads to us, in other words, a righteous path. Um, But in fact, history doesn't speak to us that way. It's a much richer um, and more difficult history to understand. Yeah. So one of the steps along that path was that before they were able to pass the 19th Amendment, the Senate shot it down twice. What changed between those rejections and its ultimate approval? And, And was that a political move? Was that a shift in the politics of the time or the morality of the time? What caused that? Right, and you're referencing a shift that came um, at the very end of this struggle, right? 1918, 1919, and then ratification in 1920. And the Senate is a sticking point. The Senate's reversal, I think, is emblematic of the much larger incremental shifts that we see. In other words, year by year, as you've suggested, um, more and more people come to support this effort. How does that happen in the Senate? Uh, I'd like to say it's a moral awakening, right? But in fact, if you look really closely at the votes, you see that politics has everything to do with it. Uh, If we look at the reversals of two of the leading politicians in this country, Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, right? Both men started out as opponents to women's suffrage for the same reason, not needed. Men have it taken care of, right? They called it unnecessary. They, uh, Teddy Roosevelt famously said, I don't think they do any harm with it, but they don't need it. And a year later, when he's seeking the nomination on the progressive ticket for president, he calls himself an unequivocal supporter of suffrage. That's a political shift, right? I'm not saying he also didn't have an awakening that it was the right thing to do, but in the same way, women pressure and lobby um, and show up and gradually persuade Wilson to shift. And Wilson is crucial in the Senate story, right? Um, Your assumption, of course, that the Senate 
rejected it and then passed it, we only get to that point, of course, once the House passes it. And if you look at the House history of the 19th Amendment and its repeated considerations in the 19-teens, you can see political change in real time. In other words, as more states give women the right to vote, those constituencies change and they send different people to Washington or those people in Washington see new pressures. So the House incremental shift, right, predates Wilson's and Wilson, for a lot of important reasons, comes to pressure the Senate. So you just brought up some of the reasons that Woodrow Wilson in particular opposed women having the right to vote. But I'm curious on a larger scale what some of the arguments at the time were against women's voting rights. To me, that's as interesting as anything. Is not the self-evident claim that we make that women deserve these rights. But what's much more interesting is why did opposition persist? And I found a couple really salient reasons for that. One is that if you look closely at the literature of anti-suffragists, you often see them using the phrase double suffrage. In other words, women don't need to vote because their fathers, their husbands, their sons, their brothers, right, will take care of it for them. In other words, double suffrage really does indicate to me that there's an assumption at the time that women don't necessarily belong, right? There are also arguments, um, maybe disingenuous, that women will be corrupted by the rough and tumble world of politics. I'm sure you've heard that, right? That it's beneath them. But there's also some that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. And this has um, come, become much clearer to me recently in my research. One of them is there was a very real and correct fear that if women were given the right to vote, one of the first things they'd pursue is temperance laws, anti-alcohol laws. We don't talk about that a lot because our country's experiment with prohibition largely ended in the 1930s. But that was really where a lot of early women's suffrage activism came out of, not just abolition, but temperance. Hmm. And so the opposition had much to do with the fear that women would push a dry agenda, if you will. Kind of building off of that, what was the role of women in society at the time? Well, and here I'm relying on the scholarship of others. Um, and also mo most recently I've learned of Sarah Chatfield's work in the political science department. And Sarah taught me that it was actually in the area of property rights that women make progress earlier than voting rights, which is sort of interesting. In the 19th century, you see earlier movement. And that's really critical that in the 19th century and up to and perhaps past uh, the 19th Amendment, women, when they entered into marriage, of course, were largely seen as subordinate to their husbands, right? That they were subsumed um, in a kind of literal sense. I think voting rights are just one point of a much larger history, right? So when you think about what allows women to advance, the vote is one thing, right? But I think sometimes we tend to privilege politics and political participation. What was the status of women vis-a-vis -vis property rights, vis-a-vis -vis reproductive rights, education, the workplace, right? And if you look at that entire spectrum, you can see the many ways in which women were lesser than, particularly white men. They were disadvantaged in structural ways, much more than just in the voting box. Right. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. So 
these are women that we look back to as heroes a lot of the time. Um, I'm curious what tactics they use to, to make this move and to push for their voting rights and whether any of those tactics shifted the way that women organized after. Right, and that's a, that's a really big question because of course this is, for all its limitations, the most consequential reform movement in American history. If you're talking about a broad challenge to electoral politics, this is big, right? To reach back, I think it's crucial to understand that voting rights and the pursuit of suffrage is very much bound up in other goals in the 19th century. Abolition was crucial. Temperance, as I mentioned, was crucial, right? And this long predates the modern suffrage movement, right? And so in many ways, the earliest suffragists were people who wanted to affect change relative to slavery or alcohol or other moral reforms. And so their tactics are shaped by that. Uh, if you think about the American Civil War, many suffragists were deeply invested in a union victory because they hoped that what that might bring would be emancipation, voting rights for Blacks, and voting rights for women. So I want to stress how deeply suffrage was um, really intertwined with the other moral reforms of the 19th century. You asked about tactics, um, and I think those tactics shift. I've mentioned the crucial role of temperance, right, and that uh, Francis Willard, the founder of the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, was one of the early suffragists and very much in pursuit of the banning of alcohol. But she begins to look much more towards savvy techniques at the turn of the century. And suffragists are similar. How can we adopt the techniques of, uh, of modern movements? And they begin to use kind of spectacular tactics like parades, um, public displays. They double down on the use of advertising, which is really interesting. Visual promotions of suffrage, right? Um, they print suffrage materials on baseball programs and billboards and shop windows, anything they can do. And the crucial thing is to keep suffrage in the news. And that's really where you see the movement in the early 20th century. Interesting. So by keeping it in the news and just pushing that that message was out there and it's something women wanted, is that what really moved the needle, do you think? I'm just, I'm going back kind of to that question about what caused the Senate to change their votes and what kind of caused public tide to shift. Uh, for me, it, it isn't just the advertising, although there is an avalanche of kind of uh, public information, you know, PR campaigning going on. If you look at the path and the geography, this is very important to me, you see that as the country moves state by state towards suffrage, there is a kind of momentum there. Uh, for me, the crucial tipping point is the campaign in New York. Uh, one of the first states east of the Mississippi to grant women the right to vote in 1917. That's fairly late, right? If you consider the first being Wyoming in the 19th century. So those Western victories were crucial. Very few people benefited, right? Very few people live out here in the West in the 19th century. But one by one, those victories um, in the West and then crucially east of the Mississippi begin to shift a kind of, um, I would say, a tipping point, right? Um, to me, it's not a surprise that Woodrow Wilson 
comes out in support of women's suffrage just a few months after New York grants women the right to vote. Right. So I want to talk a little bit more about that geographic element that exists to this story. Can we talk a little bit more about how the push for women's suffrage was not uniform across all geographies at one time? Like, how did that movement happen? Where did it start? And why did it start in the West first? Yeah, and I think we have a tendency out here in the West, at least I've heard a lot of these narratives like, oh, well, people were more enlightened out here, women had more rights. Well, yes and no. The fact is that very, very few people lived in those first four states to grant women the right to vote. Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, um, Idaho. But those four states had very, very few women. The reason that women were granted the vote was different in each one of those states. Take Colorado, our own state the first state where a referendum, so the voters actually, if you will, granted, if that's the right word, women the right to vote. That wasn't out of enlightened notions of gender equality. That might've been part of it, but much more important was that that this was a state that was flirting with electoral reforms, the initiative, the referendum, the recall. And you have uh, a very robust populist movement that wanted female support. You have a very robust temperance movement. And those together push this through, right? It's not so much an idea that women are equal to men, but that their voting power might prove very, very useful, right? And in every state, the arguments are a little different, right? In some of the Midwestern states, it's pure political pressure. Just day after day, those suffrage organizations pressuring state legislators. In New York, there's a massive campaign to change the minds of Democratic politicians in Tammany Hall. And it fails first before it succeeds. In other words, this is an incremental story. It's not a a one and done where everything sweeps across the country. We're talking about five, six decades, right, of pressure. So you mentioned that New York was really, really crucial to kind of changing the the tide publicly. Um, So I'm curious why, why New York was this important center for suffrage. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The simple fact is that New York is the largest state. Um, And like I said earlier, the fact that it was the first to completely grant women full suffrage rights, um, east of the Mississippi, the first state to do that, really, really made an impact. Everybody was watching what they called the Empire State Campaign, first in 1915 when it failed, and then in 1917 when it succeeded. It was so important that in that first Empire State Campaign in 1915, the National Association moved its headquarters to New York as a show of its commitment to winning that state. So it's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment's ratification. So I'm just curious, after that was ratified, was it, I guess, how did electoral politics change? Was it like an immediate, okay, women have the right to vote now, everybody, let's go do it? Or was it still like sort of something that needed to ramp up? That's a great question. And I think it's important to be honest here that electoral politics did not radically shift in the aftermath of the 19th Amendment. And there are good reasons for that. Women don't vote as a block in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, Women vote very similar to those in their class and their race, perhaps their geography, their party identification. And so you don't see an upset of the electoral system in the 1920s. For instance, you don't see a wave of reform uh, legislation that comes out of this. Um, 
The second thing I want to say is I really appreciate the way that scholars in the last few years, African-American historians, historians of, um, of women have tried to help us think about the 19th Amendment as crucial, but one step in a much larger journey. In other words, I think we look at these milestones um, as sort of um, the crucial marks. But look who remained outside the electoral sphere. For me as a professor, one of the most poignant ironies is that as women are gaining the vote in the West and then nationwide, Black men are systematically losing the vote in the Jim Crow South. Think about that. If you really let that sink in, that tells you so much about where this country is going. And talk about a crooked path, right? That is to say, many women suffragists in the South used blatantly racial appeals. Last week, I discovered a handbill promoting the vote in Virginia for women. And it said explicitly, don't worry, endorsing women's suffrage in Virginia for white women will not challenge the racial hierarchy of the other laws in our state. In other words, just because the 19th Amendment is ratified doesn't mean we won't continue to be able to have laws like literacy tests, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, uh, all those things that structurally kept limitations on voting. I say all this because I understand and celebrate the ratification of the 19th Amendment and the anniversary that we're upon. But I would hope that we think about that in a larger context of who does and doesn't have access to the ballot box. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I really appreciate that point. And, and I kind of want to build on it a little bit. So we know that the 19th Amendment did not give everyone the right to vote and not even all women the right to vote. Um, so what has suffrage looked like for these other groups of women that were really left out of the 19th Amendment, Black women, Native women? That's a great question, and it's complicated. Part of the reason it's complicated is that uh, we tend to forget in this country, but suffrage laws prior to the 19th Amendment were statewide. And so we need to look back on that, despite the 15th Amendment, which banned prohibitions against the right to vote based on race. We know that Black men were not permitted access to the ballot box. That goes for Black women as well. And so the 19th Amendment's ratification essentially left Black women in the dust, right? Those who lived in the South. And that is horrifying. Um, we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about the ways that white women in the South actually benefited from some of those racial appeals, right? Those anti-immigrant appeals. The concern about the rising immigrant vote, if you will, right? Can we be a bulwark against that? as white women. It's very complicated based on geography, especially. Uh, I know that for Native American um, voting rights, 1924 is when Native Americans are granted full citizenship rights. But if memory serves, that's not upheld in the Supreme Court until much, much later, right? Asian Americans, it takes several decades for their citizenship rights and voting rights to be upheld in the 1940s and 50s, a post-Second World War phenomenon. And so I think we tend to assume that the amendment, whether it be the 15th or the 19th, is this sort of blanket decree, right? When in fact, the devil's in the details and it's enforced differently everywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to build on on this context that we're creating um, a little bit and just talk about some of the, the history book heroes like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. These are the people that we learn about when we talk about suffrage in our history classes growing up. But as far as I understand, there are many more people, many more women that were involved in this fight. Um, so who else was fighting this fight and why don't we know their names? That's a, that's a great question. And I love that question as a historian because the answer is really fascinating. Anthony and Stanton and their heirs were the ones who wrote the first draft of the history of suffrage. Literally, they put out a six volume history of the movement that is both a narrative and also the sources themselves. If you think about speeches or letters or victories, right? That record, is an invaluable resource for historians, but guess who gets written out of that, right? And so a crucial um, hero, if you want one for me and someone I learned about only a few years ago is um, Frances Harper, who was a civil rights activist as well as a poet um, who spoke immediately after the Civil War in a rousing um, message to the, uh, I think 11th or 12th annual convention for women's rights and called out white women for their absence of activism around racial injustice, right? Why don't we know about Frances Harper? I certainly didn't learn about her in Schoolhouse Rock or my history classes, right? Um, those are simply omissions, right? That didn't fit the mold of the classic narrative that you and I were raised on, right? She had this famous speech in 1866 where she says, you white women speak here of rights, I speak of wrongs. Um, others, this is something I didn't learn until a few years ago with the renewed attention to Seneca Falls, but Lucretia Mott, when she's attending the Seneca Rights Convention, right, that's right after she goes and visits the Seneca Nation, which is putting together its constitution. And she watches as those people think about membership in the tribe, who speaks, who has rights, right? And that was really a profound um, influence on her. In other words, I think the history is much more complicated and far-reaching, right, and ironic <laughs> once we take a broader scope. So you talked just a second ago about how some of these stories that, that you just shared with us don't fit into the narrative that we want to tell about this or the narrative that we have wanted to tell about this. I'm curious what that narrative is and why why we haven't told these stories, why they get left out. Yeah, and I think right now we're going through a reckoning with so many elements of our history, right? What would it really look like to rewrite the past um, with a redefined understanding of membership, right, in this story? So that's a really good question. But I think we tend to imagine it as a kind of um, incremental progressive arc, right? When you dig down, into the state by state campaigns, you see just what I said, a crooked path. And perhaps I mean that in both senses of the word, right? But one that's not an easy redemptive story. One that may make us feel as uncomfortable as it does good about ourselves. Of course the outcome is glorious and worth commemorating, but the path is complicated. 
why were some states willing to grant women the right to vote? Well, it was in some ways to restrict the rights of others. What would it look like to be a little more honest about the role of temperance in suffrage, right? Cher Carrie Chapman Catt, the leader of the National Association, she actively distanced the suffrage movement from temperance activists because that was not the kind of story they wanted to tell and they were afraid of alienating men. <laughs> uh, African-American women were actively dissuaded from being visible in the movement, right? Because that too might look like something that alienated potential sympathizers. So there's a reason for the narrative being what it was and that, that too is revealing. So you've kind of talked about a lot of the history that not everybody knows about here. And I'm curious if there's anything that we've left out that you want to talk about. What hidden history might, might still exist here? I always tell my students, be careful when you think you've got the definitive story because your grandchildren will tell you otherwise, right? <laughs> um, one thing that I haven't seen a lot of attention to, which is really surprising to me, is the degree to which women's suffrage is very much intertwined, not just with the war, but the influenza pandemic, all those three things are unfolding at the same time. And when we tell our stories, you know, there's been so many anniversaries of the war, of the pandemic, and now of suffrage, we tend to tell them separately, right? But Carrie Chapman Catt, the leading suffragist in the United States, was infected with influenza. She was terrified that as the second wave uh, came across the United States in the fall of 1918, it would derail the effort in the Senate, right? That that would be the end of the 19th Amendment in that session. Um, we tend not to remember that part of the reason that Wilson warmed to the idea of suffrage was seeing Kat and others in the NWASA step up when it came to the war. That's not a happy history, right? Alice Paul very much opposes um, the war and Wilson's role in it. but. It's complicated. There, is, there are different wings of the movement. And Wilson does look at the way in which women aided the war effort and as a result becomes more sympathetic. Carrie Chapman Catt chooses not to oppose American entry into the war. So all these things, I would say, are maybe not hidden history, but parts of the story we don't really think about. So this brings us a little bit to today. So we're at this place right now where women are playing a huge role in politics. We have the squad. Kamala Harris is on the presidential ballot. And we also have seen Trump directly appeal to suburban women for a vote. So I'm curious what you think this says about the way that history has evolved and the role that history plays in shaping our world. One thing I'd say is that we should remember how short the time frame is between the 19th Amendment and our own moment, right? We should remember that for some women, it was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, even more recent, that was far more consequential than the 19th Amendment. In other words, those two things together are what enfranchise many women in this country. I think we need to remember also that um, the last figure I heard was that uh, as of 2018, there were still over 37 million female citizens in this country who were not registered to vote. Think about that number, 37 million who are still not registered to vote. What does that say, right, about the importance of the 19th Amendment, but perhaps also its limitations or its unfinished business? 
The final thing is uh, something that happened to me um, when I first got to DU. I was uh, teaching a course on the American Civil War and Reconstruction. And when we got to the part about Reconstruction, it was really crucial that students understand how Southern states erected limitations to voting, uh, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, literacy tests, even the Klan, right? And at the end of our session, one of my senior auditors, non-students who were just taking the course for fun and elderly white women, very modestly put up her hand. And I called on her and she said, well, I just wanna mention what happened to me as a young woman. This is a white woman in the American South um, who had married young and who had very different political views than her husband did, right? And in Texas, she was subject to the poll tax, right? The poll tax affected most every voter. And because she didn't share her husband's opinions, her husband was not keen to let her vote, if you will. And she was a housewife. And so he said, I won't pay your poll tax. And so she left him. <laughs> so the story has kind of an interesting ending, but I tell that, I repeat that story because that's in our own lifetimes. Maybe not yours and mine, but hers, right? That was the 1950s in Texas. That was a white woman. Um, and so we can only imagine the compounding effects of race and class across history, right? And just, I think sometimes we take for granted, that's what I wanna get through, voting and access to the ballot. But I think the thing I'd leave you with in terms of politics today is just unfinished business, right? That the, the greatest honor we can bestow on the 19th Amendment is to actually use it. To learn more from Susan Schulten on the 19th Amendment, visit du.edu slash radioed. James Swearingen arranged our theme music. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Melissa Hurst, today's host and Radio Ed's executive producer. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.